from what the science shows us in, the, in this area is that meditation is to the mind what exercise is to the body. You know, you can literally train your mind in a moment. So right now, you know, as you're listening, CC, and anybody who's listening to this, just notice how your breath feels in your body. So can you feel some sensation associated with your breath? Yeah. You're meditating. You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Hi, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. I'm Ceci Amador de San Jose, and our guest today is Dr. Cortland Dahl, Chief Contemplative Officer for Healthy Minds Innovation and Research Scientist at the Center for Healthy Minds. Court, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Very excited to be here. I'm very excited about our conversation today, mostly about the science of well-being, which is not a not something that everyone talks about when they're talking about well-being and wellness. And that's why I think that what you guys are doing at Healthy Minds Innovation is so amazing. And from my, from my research on it um, and my previous conversation with your CEO, Peggy Panache, uh, what caught my mind the most and what I never expected to hear was that um, we can train our minds um, for well-being and to improve our well-being. Um, from what I understand, it has to do a little bit with neuroplasticity of the brain, but I'm not a doctor. Um, so why don't you uh, walk us through a little bit behind the science of of well-being and training our minds uh, to improve our wellness. Yeah, yeah, thank you for bringing uh, that particular point up about neuroplasticity because it's such a hopeful way of looking at the human mind, the human brain, and it really kind of goes against a lot of things we heard a lot of us when we were younger. Um, so if you would have read a, you know, a neuroscience textbook or a basic scientific textbook about the brain 20 years ago, you would have heard things like that the, you know, the brain basically develops through childhood, and then really the brain doesn't change so much. The only change that happens is really decay sets in, you know, from the time we're in our mid-20s, and it's kind of all downhill, but the brain is really not uh, very dynamically changing. So that's what neuroscientists believed for a lot of the history of neuroscience. But in recent decades, scientists have discovered that actually the brain is dynamically changing really every moment and it's changing in response to experience. So in one sense, this is good news because it, it shows that if we take some responsibility for what those changes are and how they're occurring, we can actually harness this capacity of the brain, this, this uh, principle of neuroplasticity to use the brain, uh, to train the brain to operate in ways that are healthy and that cultivate or, or improve well-being. So I'm guessing that that claim, and I think I've heard it a few times that our brain stops kind of like developing at 25 years old. That's not true anymore. Yeah, it's not true. You know, and it, it there's kind of a very personal side of this too, where I think a lot of us believe that due to our genetics or any range of factors that we're just kind of hardwired to be yeah. a certain way. Like when I started meditating in my uh, early 20s, I had just had a ton of anxiety. And I kind of thought, I'm just an anxious person. This is just how I am. And I didn't realize at the time, and this is what the science tells us, the science of neuroplasticity, that actually we all can change. We can all, we can essentially train ourselves to experience more well-being. We can train our mind to operate in a, in a more healthy way. Okay. And so based on all of this, it's not 
um, age related, which is great news for people over 25 who previously thought that their brain stopped developing at that age. Um, but um, what about, so I do understand that in childhood, our, our brain is more dynamic, kind of like it's easier to learn a language when you're a child than when you're an adult. Um, how does that affect um, this concept of neuroplasticity and, and training our minds for well-being? Is it easier the sooner we start, we start the younger we start? Or do you think that regardless of age, it'll be a very like similar process in, in terms of time to kind of like see the results? Yeah, good question. Uh, so the short answer is that neuroplasticity exists across the lifespan. So it's not as though, you know, if you don't do something when you're a child or in the teens that you, you know, you miss your opportunity. Uh, it is something that, uh, you know, cuts across all ages. So there's always, um, you know, this this ability we have to, to train the mind and to rewire our brain. But there are windows of opportunity, as you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. There are periods in life where that capacity for change and transformation is enhanced. So certainly young children, as you can visibly see, are, are, are really changing in many ways, both biologically, but even changes in the mind and the brain. So you there are kind of windows of opportunity where that potential is, is heightened, you could say. But it's not to say that, you know, if you're later in life, uh, if you're, you know, in the middle age, or even you're uh, in the last stages of life, you still very much can make use of this potential. Okay, let's um, bring down the concept of neuroplasticity into everyday life and, and practice. And so you mentioned that you started practicing meditation when you were um, in your 20s. Um, mm -hmm. And then people think about meditation, or at least I think of meditation as this like, you know, dark room, some candles, um, 20 minutes, just trying to find my inner sen. And I mean, truthfully, that's never really worked for me. Um, but I understand, and this is what I really like about um, your programs, is that um, you claim, Healthy Minds Innovation claims that from the research, it only takes about five to seven minutes a day of practicing, training our brains and kind of like meditation practices. So can you kind of like bring that whole concept down to how does it look for people in their day-to-day -day lives and why only five to seven minutes? Yeah, yeah. I would even go further than that and say, you, you know, you can literally train your mind in a moment. So right now, you know, as you're, you know, you can literally train your mind in a moment. So right now, you know, as you're listening, CC and anybody who's listening to this, just notice how your breath feels in your body. <laughs> so can you feel some sensation associated with your breath? Yeah. You're meditating. You just <laughs> meditated, right? You literally are meditating right now. If you're paying attention to your breath, or even right now, I'm speaking. If you intentionally pay attention to my voice, you're meditating. That's all meditation is, is you're bringing intention to what's going on in your own mind. So when you do that, those short moments of intention, like again, you could be doing right now by bringing awareness to your breath or intentionally paying attention to what you're hearing, you are activating networks in your brain. Specifically, you're activating what's called the central executive network. This is the network that you need to activate to, uh, to be less on autopilot, to be less driven by habit, and instead to be in the driver's seat of your own mind, your own emotions, your attention, your impulses, so you can do this literally in a moment. What we're doing is it's almost like we're, we're kind of in very short moments activating these brain networks. And of course, if you just do that once and you never do it again, you know, it'd be like doing one push-up, you know, or one, you know, <laughs> jogging for a minute and then stopping. It's, 
it will have helped for that minute, but it's not going to have a lasting benefit. But what the science shows is that if you add these short moments into your day and you, you just repeat them many times, you take those fleeting brain states where you just bring on that, that executive network for a moment, and eventually those become enduring traits. So you can actually do this for short moments throughout your day. As you were saying, uh, Ceci, you don't need to you know, close your you know, blinds and have a dark room and light a stick of incense. You can be doing this literally anytime and anywhere, and it has a way of bringing depth and meaning to even these mundane moments of our everyday life. So in a work setting, um, can you give a few examples of how this would look like? So before someone has a big presentation or if they're anxious about, I don't know, a meeting with, with their supervisor or their manager, what, 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 does, what, what would this look like? This um, training, this um, kind of like spur of the moment, in the moment meditation practices? Yeah, yeah, really good question. So uh, just to take a, a, a practical example that many of us experience some variation of where maybe you have to give a presentation or you have a big meeting where you have to, you know, you have to share a new idea or give a report. Um, you know, going back to when I started meditating, I, I mentioned I had a lot of anxiety. I was phobic of public speaking, so that that was a good example for me because I remember I these times where, <laughs> yeah, I never would have guessed that I would do so much public speaking. I do it all the time now. But when I was nineteen, if I had to come on a podcast like this, I would have been thinking about it two months earlier, and I would have been so freaked out by it. So if you imagine what is this, you know, how do these practices, these principles, and even this capacity in the brain, how does this help us in moments like this? One of the first things that I learned, and I still use this to this day, is to simply notice what's going on in our bodies when we have these emotional experiences. So say you're walking into that meeting, even if you don't have time to go and do a formal meditation, you just have a minute or two as you're transitioning from one activity, perhaps going to, you know, walking into that meeting. As you're walking into that meeting to get out of all the spinning thoughts in your mind and just notice what's going on in your body. You don't even need to stop feeling the anxiety. Just notice what it actually feels like. And when you redirect your attention, it has a way of kind of diffusing the emotional impact in that moment. And what's going on in the brain is, as I mentioned earlier, you're literally activating this executive network in the brain. So you're shifting from these emotional centers of the brain where, where all the activity is happening. And instead you're shifting it to this executive network. And then you can really choose what kind of experience you want to be having. With a little practice, you can learn to, to kind of defuse that emotional impact and instead bring online a sense of appreciation. Or maybe you remember the deeper purpose for why you're doing the work that you do. And that gives you some inspiration. So there's many different strategies. But the key is that you start with this, this quality of intentionality where you're back in the driver's seat of your own mind. And I find that very powerful because it gives us back some control. Um, I feel like there has been a lot said that when we're anxious or nervous, we, we feel, at least I feel out of control. And so knowing that I can redirect that it kind of kind of just grounds me just thinking about ha me having the control back and not letting my emotions uh, run just because I don't know what I'm feeling. It, it's great. Like you said, it's um, important that we acknowledge what we're feeling, but it gives us some control into how we react to it. I, I think, I don't know that that's kind of what I'm getting uh, from this. And I find that really powerful, especially when we feel like so many areas and aspects of our life are, 
out of control. And I think that's been especially true right now with the global pandemic. I feel like everyone feels like everything is out of their control. I know that at least here where I'm based, people feel like they don't have control to plan anything two, three days in advance because um, restrictions and guidances keep changing so often. And so I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I just felt this overall sense of anxiousness and just I couldn't control anything. I couldn't leave my house if I wanted to, or if I didn't want to, like, I mean, I work from home. I've been working from home for almost six years now. And I've always decided that I like working from home instead of going to an office. And I like being at home. But the minute that they told me you can't leave your home for three days, I'm like, I want to leave. They took that power away from me. And so regaining that control through these practices, it's amazing. And I feel like a lot of people could, could benefit from this. The, what you're mentioning now is is actually such an important point. And the, the science in this area really backs up what you're saying. There's this principle of what scientists call self-efficacy as being really a central quality of well-being, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's feeling like we have some agency in our lives, some some ability to control what's going on in our world. And if you look at, if you kind of look back on times when you struggle, uh, you know, I think if you're anything like me, oftentimes we're fixated on the things we can't control. Because in any situation, as you're saying, there are going to be some things that are just completely out of our control. It doesn't matter how smart we are, how how hardworking we are, we just aren't going to be able to control the pandemic. So when we fixate on the things that that are out of our control, basically that's a recipe for anxiety, depression, stress, and just generally being overwhelmed and depleted. But what these practices do is not only they put us back in the driver's seat of our, our mind, our emotions, and our impulses, but they orient us towards the qualities of experience that actually we do have some control over. So another example, like you talked about the pandemic, which is a great example, but even just like a, a relationship where maybe you you get into an argument with a with a partner or have a challenging moment with a friend, there's going to be some things you can't control, but what we can control is our response. We can control what's going on in our mind and how we react to the situation. So we can learn to, to respond with wisdom and compassion rather than to react out of blind habit. So that just puts us back in the driver's seat and we just feel like we have more control and we don't feel so out of control, like you're saying, which is so, so important for well-being. I, I agree. And um, I understand that Healthy Minds Innovations developed a framework to train our minds. Um, and the value proposition of this framework is that it can teach resilience and help improve relationships, uh, specifically in a workplace setting. Um, why is this more important than, than ever in light of the pandemic, in light of the burnout crisis that appears to be happening and mental health awareness? Why is this more important than ever? And why is resilience so important? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking about this. So we, um, so Healthy Minds Innovations, just to give a little bit of context, is a nonprofit here in the U.S. that is affiliated with the Center for Healthy Minds, which is a research center at the University of Wisconsin uh, here in Madison, where I live. Um, and the framework you're talking about actually started at the, at the Center for Healthy Minds and the, based on decades of research that we've done at the center that has really led to this insight that well-being is best thought of as a skill. It's not something that's determined by our genetics, 
by our biology, nor is our, our brain hardwired to experience a certain level of well-being. Well-being is really like a, a skill. It's something that you can learn. It's something that you can train. It's something you can get better at, essentially, if you, if you really put some intention behind it. So the framework that, that you mentioned, um, we published uh, just about a year and a half ago, and it, it focuses and lays out a, a simple way of understanding the core dimensions of well-being that are trainable. So we call these the four pillars of well-being. So the four are awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. So these are essentially four aspects of well-being or four pillars of well-being to use our language. And they're also things that you can train. So just a moment ago, when we did that very brief exercise of intentionally bringing uh, our awareness to the sensations in the body, like breathing, you are essentially strengthening that pillar of awareness. Like another, another example would be to intentionally notice the positive in the people you're with, in your environment. And when you do that, you're essentially strengthening this quality of connection. It, it just sets us up to have positive interactions and to have meaningful relationships with people. So again, these are just all skills that we can learn and train. And there's decades of science to, to kind of back up these, these basic insights. And then in the workplace setting, um, why is, is this so important right now? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. If you, if you look back over the past few decades and there's been, you know, an increased focus on, on wellness, for example, in the corporate world. In the past and to a large degree, even in the present, although I think this is fortunately changing, it was seen as kind of the side thing that like, okay, yeah, we want people to be happy, but it's totally separate from all these you know, important business-related outcomes um, that an organization or a business uh, or corporation might have. But what the science is now showing is that these aspects of well-being, like awareness and connection, are not only important just for people to be happy and to function well and to be resilient, they're also centrally important to the other outcomes that we have at work. So take a simple one, like the, the one I've mentioned a few times now, awareness. This is the capacity that we all have or lack at times to be able to stay focused and to resist the pull of distraction. So that's incredibly important for our well-being and to be resilient and just to feel uh, more grounded and not so overwhelmed and scattered. But even just to getting work done, if you imagine just a day at work, say you, I do a lot of desk work, you know, if you want to stay focused on what you're doing, you need to have that same skill set. So the same skill that helps you be a good listener with the people you care about, that helps you be less emotionally reactive, is also one of the key skills that helps us to be really productive and at the top of our game at work. And you could go down the list, connection, insight, purpose, all of these are skills that are central to well-being and to a highly functioning organization and to really being at the top of our game generally, you know, at work, at home, and everywhere in between. And I understand that Healthy Minds Innovations offers different programs um, for companies to provide to their employees. Um, from the from your studies or from the data that that you have from from people that participate in these programs, um, what are some key improvements that Healthy Minds Innovations has observed among individuals and organizations that practice mindfulness and meditation on a regular basis? 
Yeah, there's some really, really interesting research happening. We have um, uh, a number of large scale uh, scientific studies going. We've already completed, I mean, we've been doing this work for years, but with the Healthy Minds program, which is the program that you're, that you're alluding to that we created uh, based on this framework of well-being to, to bring some of these insights from our research out into the world, we're really seeing remarkable results. So we did, uh, just as one example, over the last year, uh, we did a study with 700 school teachers here in Wisconsin, where we live, and it was right in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, this was just an incredibly challenging time for people in the teaching profession because the whole world of teaching and schools and education was turned upside down. So incredibly stressful period. And we took this, this program we've developed, which is this uh, Healthy Minds program app, which you can find on all of the uh, app stores. And we just gave it to them. There was no live training. It was completely digital. And we just wanted to see if they would use it. And if so, what the benefits would be. So we did a very rigorous study where we had control groups. It was what we scientists call an RCT, a randomized controlled trial. So this was a very, a very rigorous study. It was a big study, it was with 700 school teachers. And what we found was that they, they used it and actually in only five minutes a day, and I think this is probably what you were uh, pointing to earlier, with just doing five minutes a day of these simple practices, sometimes even practicing in the midst of daily life activities. So we didn't even ask people to sit quietly and meditate. They could, they could meditate while they were going for a walk or cooking breakfast or doing the laundry. But just five minutes a day had these really dramatic improvements in well-being and reductions in stress, in anxiety, in depression. There were improvements in things like social connectedness, in the quality of their attention. So we were quite shocked that pretty much everything we measured had significant uh, statistical improvements. And sometimes as much as like 28 to 30%, for example, reductions in mental distress and wow. um, stress and anxiety. And that was just five minutes a day for one month. And even better, we saw that when we measured, when we went back and measured them three months later, those same reductions were maintained. There was a little bit of drop off, but you still saw, saw these statistically significant reductions in things like stress and anxiety, even three months later after they had finished the program. That, that that's incredible, especially um, in the midst of a of a global pandemic. Talking a little bit more about um, Healthy Minds Innovation programs, I understand that um, you guys recently launched a Founders Edition Masterclass. Um, why specifically for founders? Yeah, so this is actually the the term founder um, in the masterclass is because uh, I myself am leading it with Dr. Richard Davidson. Okay. Uh, and the, we are, uh, along with another colleague of ours, Dr. Christy Wilson-Mendenhall, we're the three authors of this well-being framework that we published um, a while back, and also the creators of the Healthy Minds program. So we teach these courses. Uh, we've been teaching them for years and you know, teach them to many different organizations. And occasionally we do for the general public, as we're doing with this one. Um, but it's the first time that Dr. Uh, Davidson and I are doing it for the general public where we're actually teaching it ourselves. Um, so it's really the, the first time that we've done that. We've done it uh, for some big companies where the two of us have led uh, workshops um, together. So it's the first time where um, we're kind of doing it in that way. 
Um, and we don't do it that frequently for the general public. Usually it's, you know, in workplace settings for, you know, some of our, our big organizational partners. So we're really excited about it. It's a fun time, frankly, for us just to kind of geek out about the science, to learn some of these skills and to practice them together and really learn what some of the cutting edge science uh, in this area is saying. Um, so everyone that's uh, listening in, uh, we do have a discount code for you guys if you want to enroll into the Founders edition of the Masterclass. Uh, for 20% off, the code is FUTURE. Again, FUTURE. Um, and then going back to our conversation, uh, Court, what else can you tell us about uh, the science of, of well-being training our minds? And you mentioned that um, from the study that you conducted with the teachers, it was um, after three months, um, the statistical, um, I don't even know what to call it, but uh, the percentage of improvement was yeah. still very much marked. Um, is there a point in time where that um, the improvements kind of like uh, plateau, kind of like, you know, when you're trying to lose weight or when you're working out, you always kind of like hit a plateau. Does that happen with this? Or is this something that you just encourage people to keep on? So like it's not necessarily a destination, but a continuous ongoing journey. Yeah. You know, I, I think that one way to think about meditation, uh, you know, from what the science shows us in, the, in this area is that meditation is to the mind what exercise is to the body. So there are, are many different forms of exercise. They all do different things. And exercise, as we all know, like eating healthy or sleeping well, it's not the kind of thing that you can just do once and then you're done with it and the benefits you know, will just carry on forever. It really, It's really more like learning a healthy lifestyle. So meditation is a way to care for the mind, just like diet and exercise are a way to carry for the body, care for the body. And I think what we see is that we're at the beginning of what seems like a, a major shift in our whole cultural paradigm, where these kinds of practices, which in past centuries were oftentimes found in religious or spiritual traditions, are now increasingly be, being presented outside of those contexts in hospitals and schools and corporations. So they're just becoming a very normal part of our lives in the same way that diet and exercise uh, did in, you know, in the mid uh, 20th century. So the science, I, I think what, would, what it points to is that um, ideally we wanna learn these skills and formal meditation can help to do that, although it's not the only way. And then the key is really just to be bringing these skills into our daily life practice. So again, just short moments scattered throughout our days where we are just maybe intentionally reconnecting with a deeper sense of purpose that we have, or where we are intentionally choosing where to place our attention. So we're in the driver's seat of our attention, or we're choosing to, uh, to cultivate appreciation or kindness, again, as qualities that we can strengthen. So if you do that throughout the day, then it just becomes a new habit. It's just how you live your life. And it's not so much you know, about something you have to take a ton of time out of your day, it can help, but it's not the only thing. It's more important to integrate it with daily life. And we're almost running out of time here, but before we do, um, I wanted to touch on the subject of resilience, um, specifically as it pertains right now to the workplace and, and work as people um, return to the office. And, you know, there, there's a lot of anxiety around it, a lot of stress. Um, and how can resilience um, help people through these transitions? Because uh, although I'm hopeful 
hoping there won't be a global pandemic in the near future again, there will always be situations that kind of like challenge us and force us out of our comfort zones. And after 18, almost two, 18 months, almost two years of working from home and being isolated, we kind of got used to that. And so this new change, it's going to be very challenging for a lot of people. Um, how can resilience and teaching yourself resilience and developing and nurturing that habit help? Yeah, yeah, super important question. So resilience, you could think of quite simply as how we respond to adversity in a healthy way. So we've all had moments where we had a challenge or something was difficult and we get completely overwhelmed by it or we get knocked off balance and we really struggle to deal with the adversity. But we've all also probably had experiences where there's a really difficult situation and we not only got through it, but maybe we even learned, we even grew, we kind of got some important life lessons. So the difficult situation actually was a catalyst for some kind of self-discovery and growth. So the question is what, what helps us move along that spectrum? So we're less overwhelmed in the face of adversity. And we certainly have a lot of adversity these days. And how can we move along that spectrum? So instead we're actually learning and growing through adversity. And again, as you're alluding to, Ceci, uh, we can actually train ourselves. It's exactly the same set of skills. We can do simple things in our daily routine so for example, in the Healthy Minds program app, which is completely free, we teach a lot of these skills. It basically just gives us these inner capacities and strengthens these inner capacities. So we will be more on the end of learning and growing rather than getting completely overwhelmed. So it doesn't make the adversity go away, but it basically strengthens our inner resources so we can deal with it in a, in a healthy way that puts us on the best footing to, to really flourish, even in in difficult times. Amazing. And again, thank you Court, for, for taking the time to, to chat with us today. I find it deeply fascinating and I think it's very hopeful um, for everyone out there um, as we're dealing with a lot of mental stress, some anxiety, and as we're starting to prioritize, not just on the individual level, but the organizational level, the importance of, of mental health and, and our overall well-being. I find that that the science backs up these claims is is amazing and it gives us a lot of hope especially since in our you know very busy lives um we're learning that it doesn't really take you don't have to carve out so much time and and, and do it in, in a specific setting but it's something that you can just do is i don't know you're taking your dog for a walk you're commuting um, again to the office or you know just while you're making dinner or, or eating. I, I find that fascinating and amazing. Yeah, anybody can do this. Even the busiest people can do this. Uh, I guarantee it just, it just takes a little time to get started. So thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's uh, really an honor to be here with you. So uh, and great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you everyone for tuning in to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Remember that new episodes are released every Thursday and you can tune in on allwork.space, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?